you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 59 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard, Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you. And as you know, last week we had part one of our interview with Sonia McEntee and David Peters, two solicitors who attended the Law Society's summit on the future of legal practice. It's great stuff so far. Absolutely, yeah. But I think the real the real meat comes in the second half. Part of the two, mm. part two. Stay tuned, folks. It's really good, uh, and we'll be bringing you that shortly. But first, we're going to look at three cases you have identified from the Decisis website. In the first case this week, an application was made to annul an adjudication of bankruptcy. The application for bankruptcy had been made ex parte by the proposed bankrupt. However, it then transpired that he had failed to disclose material concerning insolvency proceedings in Estonia. So this was the case of Inre Cruda, a bankrupt, and it's a court of appeal decision of Ms. Justice Pilkington. Yeah. So as you know, an application for bankruptcy can be made either by a creditor of the proposed bankrupt or you can appoint you can apply to the court to yourself to be made bankrupt, basically if your debts are in such a position that you're not going to be in a position to deal with them. But when you're making an application to the court ex parte, in other words, where there's no respondent, there is a requirement from the court that you give full and frank disclosure. There's a duty of candor is the other way that they put it. And this particular person, it transpired, had been involved in insolvency proceedings in Estonia and had not disclosed them to the court. And so in the circumstances, the court said, well, look, you know, you didn't make a proper application to the court. And the phrase they often use is to mark so its displeasure. They're, they refused. To, well, they, they set aside the adjudication of bankruptcy. OK, so full disclosure, folks. Full yep, disclosure, exactly. if you want to go down that road. Mm. OK, case number two. And this was a curious one, Mark. This mm. is one where somebody applied to be a notary public. Yep. That's to kind of notarize certain documents mm. that's required every now and again. And you get a few bob for it every time you do it. And this, he wanted to be appointed to the Dublin area and the Cork area. I mean, yep. what about all the areas in between? Well, we, what about we'll all those on, other counties? I'll, I'll come on to that in a second. Oh, very good. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the, watch uh, the space. So this was a slightly <laughs> unusual application and it went all the way to the Chief Justice. This is the case of In Ray Pryor seeking to be a notary public and it's a Supreme Court decision of Chief Justice uh, Donald O'Donnell. Yeah, well, in fact, all uh, appointments as notary public are made by the Chief Justice. So it, it it is a decision for him to make. I suppose the important thing to point out is that whereas all solicitors now, I think, are entitled to be commissioners for oaths, in other words, they're entitled to uh, witness the swearing of affidavits, a notary public has uh, further duties beyond that in terms of verifying the, uh, the, the authenticating copies of documents. And it comes in particular where, say, there are documents that, you, that are used from one country in another country's proceedings. So the, you, you do require a notary public to be a person of very high standing. And there is a faculty of notaries public in Ireland that's for, that quite carefully polices the types of people who get appointed. But the general rule is that you should only be appointed for a particular area in order that you're available. You, you need to show to the court that you're available to practice in a particular area. This applicant had been appointed to Dublin and the surrounding counties but then sought to be appointed also to Cork and the surrounding counties because he had another centre of operations there. 
And Mr. Justice O'Donnell looked at the fact that he, he passed all the qualifications to be a notary public and really appeared to ask the question, in this day and age, do you need to be appointed to a particular area? And very much held over to a future decision whether somebody could simply be appointed a notary public for all of the 26 counties of Ireland. So certainly in this case, he felt that it was appropriate to be appointed both for Dublin and Okay, Cork so that was areas. fine. Yeah, yeah okay. Exactly. All right, yeah. fair enough. Okay, our final <laughs> case today, the Supreme Court looked at the issue of whether a local authority could commit to a future zoning decision. Okay, so I'm sure that's in relation to the future, etc. The change of zoning had been made and the owner of the land said that it was inconsistent with a commitment in an earlier development plan. So basically they had changed their minds on what they wanted to do with yeah. this land. This is the case of McGarrell Riley Homes Limited versus me, the County Council. And again, it's a Supreme Court decision of a friend of the show, Mr. Justice Gerard Hogan. Yeah. So what happened in this case was there was a 2014 development plan in County Meath. And in the development plan, or in fact, a variation in the development plan, I don't think we need to go into this. They said that a particular piece of land in the future would be zoned in a particular way. Then in the subsequent development plan, which I think was in 2019, or that would be the, the usual time period, they didn't zone it in accordance with what looked like the commitment in the earlier development plan. And so the developer in this case clearly felt that they had a, 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 good, a good case to bring to judicial review. But the question the Supreme Court asked itself was, well, can a, a local authority commit to a future zoning decision? Isn't there their power only to make an individual development plan and not to that, you know, which is effectively a five-year plan, can they then say, oh, but in the future we will then do whatever it is? And under the relevant legislation, they said, no, they don't have the power to do that. All they can do is zone things in an individual development plan and not commit to a future zone okay, decision. That makes sense. I mean, future yeah. generations are allowed to decide as they will, Mark. As they will. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for those cases. And we're back shortly with part two of our interview with solicitors Sonia McEntee and David Peters. Silence in the fifth court. If we go back to the district court and crime, etc., David, you do need to be there. You do. Is there more that the court services could do for you? I mean, we've talked before to Angela Denning, who's in charge of the court services, and I think she is very ambitious in terms of how she wants to push out courts and some of those old derelict buildings are being done up and there's, there's more courts throughout. But what about maybe the superior courts? Would that be of assistance if there was more activity? We know the, the high court will go on circuit for two weeks at a time for personal injuries, claims or whatever. Would it be better to push the, the, the superior courts out throughout the country and have them sitting on a regular basis? Would that be of assistance? In terms of developing rural practices? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, a town like Nina has circuit court sittings four or five times a year for three, four weeks at a time. So we actually we do have quite a lot of circuit court sittings in Nina. And also, you know, I would travel to Limerick or you might go to, to other places. So I don't think that necessarily is where the court service should be acting. It's more what the court service have done to Royal Ireland over the last number of years that concerns me. They have closed a huge number of courts in towns right across the country. And I know that was done because of the recession and they needed to save costs. They called it rationalisation, but it was all about cost savings. And they closed courthouses in, I'm just talking about Tipperary because that's what I know, but they closed courthouses in Ross Grey. They closed Templemore. They closed Newport. They closed Bursa Cain. 
So all of that obviously had a negative impact on solicitors. Did they still have the courthouse with the turf fire in Tipperary Town? That's long gone, (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately. Just kind of come in with a sod of turf to kind of... Actually, Tipperary Town, that's a good case in point. The people of Tipperary Town now have to travel to Nina to attend their local district court. And there is no direct bus service between Tiptown and Nina. If you want to get a barring order, if you want to, if you are summoned to court, you have to get a bus. You don't have transport. You have to get a bus to Limerick and then get a bus from Limerick to Nina. So a lot of these courthouses were like sort of open kind of one day a fortnight. But yeah, I mean, so there was, well, I mean, you know, it, it costs a lot to keep a building going for a, a very limited it, use. I mean, it there might people, be other... It costs people an awful lot to have to travel to court. It costs the guards an awful lot to have to leave their local stations to travel to court. Yeah. It, all the costs were pushed back onto rural mm. society. That 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 would be my issue. I mean, now, yes, me of course, the, you, the, you can't have a court in every crossroads, yeah. just like you can't have a hospital in every crossroads. And that's another hot-button issue, obviously, in political mm. terms. But sometimes I think people think, oh, technology is the future and technology is the way to go. But And there are lots of benefits to technology, right? But this hasn't worked mm. for rural practices. Look at where we are now. Look at the fact that... Uh, towns that don't have courts anymore are now without solicitors, a lot of them, you know. So you have these legal deserts that are now developing, right? So instead of improving things and making things better for society, actually, are we making things worse, you know? Just something to think about. I yeah, don't know what I, mean, think, I, Sonia. I think there is a question there that, you know, just because we can do something doesn't necessarily mean we should do it. And I don't know whether that's given enough consideration along the way. And when we talk about you know, meeting with clients, suppose we've talked about it in the district court in the criminal context. But, you know, you think about your vulnerable clients too. You referenced older clients as well, um, clients who are not tech savvy. There's no point in setting up a Zoom meeting with an 80-year-old. It's just not going to, it's just, well, likely. Some 80-year-old right, and that's, yeah. you have to be careful how you approach these things. Absolutely right. But, you know, we can't rush to technology without taking account of everyone in society. And it's not just about an older cohort of citizens. One in six adults in Ireland is functionally illiterate. So those one in six are unlikely to be able to engage or set themselves up with a Zoom call. So they might be the people that are have to turn up in the district court, for example. Um, so if you're going to consult with them, you're going to need them face to face and you need to come to need to be. So there's absolutely a need and a requirement and a space for ongoing face to face and continue, you know, that that access. And we, you know, access to justice. It's, it's the provision of legal services across the country. And people shouldn't have to be travelling for hours on buses to get to see okay. the local solicitor. No, I, I, the point really well made. And yeah, so we need the, our courthouses opened again, revamped, presumably, get rid of the turf fires yep. and, you know, reopen them and allow people to come in. And it's very important. It's almost like the rural post office, the way the way you were describing it there, yeah, David. You know, it's, it's, stations it's, it's a very important offices. local service. Banks are now starting to close. Okay. Let, let, let's address the elephant in the room, which is the lack of trainees in rural practices. Now, we have all these wonderful, the next generation of solicitors here. I think they're all going to sign up for rural practices after this. Isn't that it? But I'm just wondering, what can be done? Is there anything that can be done, Sonia, to make it more attractive for somebody to come and train in, you know, a rural practice in a large rural town. I mean, I myself, when I started out, I was a journalist initially and I worked in various towns throughout Ireland and I was born and raised in Dublin. And I couldn't get over how wonderful it was in a large town with all the infrastructure, you know, much better than a suburban uh, part of Dublin. There was much more infrastructure there for people and a lot more more things to do. So it is very attractive to try and develop and train and learn all these things. 
Can the Law Society do anything to encourage people to, to take up those traineeships? Um, I, I suppose and, and there are two, two parts here, perhaps, and, and one might be in respect of the cohort who come immediately from university and into professional training and then, and then through, as opposed to the cohort I referenced earlier, who maybe are already established in life and who are interested in taking on law as a career. And they're, they're likely already there and, and located. And I, th I think Dave and I would share a view that um, it's, there's, there's lots of benefits in being away from home and being from Cavan myself. I know, I think when you leave home to work for several years or to study or whatever it might be, and then you go back, you have a different appreciation for what you have. So there's definitely something in that. Um, and then to go away and get that experience from outside, um, you know, because when you're in a smaller, more rural setting, go away and I suppose open your eyes to the world around you. See what's going on elsewhere. Look for the ideas. Look for the innovation. Bring them back, rather than perhaps coming through what's quite a settled, uh, quite a settled um, environment. But is there anything the law society can do, Sonia? Well, David, you might answer that as well. No, yeah. both of you. I, look, I suppose we're probably still looking for ideas. But some of the things, the, the hybrid course we've mentioned already, um, there is also a um, a traineeship grant that was established a number of years ago. So, and and this was to counter the lack of trainees outside city areas. So each year now, five trainees are sponsored effectively through their professional training and their, their the firms that they're employed in are supported financially as well in terms of taking them through that training. But that's only five solicitors and um, the cost of that grant annually is €125,000. So the Law Society is only going to be able to go so far with that kind of support. So I do think that there's probably a need for maybe more political engagement around financial supports and grants the cost of training as a solicitor is expensive. That cost falls on firms in the first instance and perhaps still back on the trainees themselves. It, well, it does in terms of, um, you know, maybe accommodation and, and uh, just costs while you're studying. Um, what can be done around that? So, you know, maybe access to, I heard Simon, uh, Simon Harris on the radio this morning, you know, talking about apprenticeships and supporting students through apprenticeships. Um, but to look to government for more financial supports because the security of legal services across the country really is, it has to be a cornerstone of what we stand for in society, that anyone can access legal services. We are, we don't, most of us will not deal in life and death matters as we go through, but we're as fundamental a service to many people as the GP might be, or as access to the post office might be, or whatever it is. And I do think we need to engage more with government and look for supports that okay. come from that direction as da well. David, what do you think? Could there be more done by the Law Society or by kind of the legal profession generally, court service, what, what, what more can be done? So there's a few things, like you, you mentioned earlier on about the level of regulation that goes on in, in legal practices, and they are correctly regulated and they have to be regulated, and that's all accepted. But like in many other areas, uh, in other professions, the regulation has gone too far, in my opinion, in relation to smaller practices in terms of things like, for example, anti-money laundering regulations, it used to be that you had to make sure you had photo ID, address for all your clients, which is fine. Even though you would know, you may have known your clients from 20 years, you still have to get that documentation. But now you have to carry out an assessment. You have to fill in a questionnaire. This has to be on your file for every single file. I had a probate. It was, in fact, my mother-in-law's probate. I had a law and society inspection, which I'm totally in favour of. You have to have inspection, particularly when it comes to accounts. You're looking after lots of, of clients' monies. Mm -hmm. But I was told that I needed to have photo ID from my own wife and my wife's brother on the file. And where was my AML questionnaire? And 
I started to put up an argument as to whether you could make that argument, but it'll be going into my report that you didn't comply with that regulation. And we should say AML. Anti-money laundering. Right, this is for a probate, for mother-in-law's probate. That's just an example of how ridiculous it has gone, right? Bad enough to have to get photo ID, but to have to fill in a questionnaire as to what is the risk of money laundering in respect of my mother-in-law's probate just makes no sense, right? So in, in some respects, I think the law society, they need to have different sets of rules for smaller practices so that they are not bogged down with that sort of regulation. Again, taking on a trainee, I would love to take on a trainee, right? But they know nothing. You have to accept that, right? You don't know anything yet. And and I have Can't to. wait for the questions to start, David. <laughs> yeah. And like the law says, and I, I, I was a trainee once, but I, like you have to pay them at least a minimum wage. You have to pay them when they're in Blackhall Place. And um, a lot of trainees would be expecting to get their fees paid for. I can't afford that. You know, that, that's, that's, just, that, that's, yeah. that's just... That's just... Yeah. But it's that's never going to be attractive if somebody else is going to pay fees, give a decent salary. Correct. I mean, it's very hard. How do you do that? that, that why like, why is that would going it to go on forever then, Sonia? It is what going to go on forever. Well, like, I mean, the fact that, yeah. I mean... You can't compete. I mean, a, a small rural practice can't compete with, let's say, those skyscrapers along the Keys that are able to have these wonderful parties and bring people in and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, so how do you how do you do that? Well, well I mean, I mean, maybe to go back to um, what I'm saying a few minutes ago about some kind of further supports that are available for more rural areas, and 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 specifically with a view to maintaining a level of service for the general public. So, um, and, and will that be sufficient to um, attract someone who goes to study, take, go, comes to Blackhall Place and then immediately come back into that rural area? I, I suspect not. People want to go and see the world. I went off and did the round the world trip after I qualified as well. I'd highly recommend it to everyone um, as a life experience, you know, and bring your experience back um, into practice. It's going to continue as an issue, uh, Peter, for as long as I suppose those financial Barriers, and they are barriers, um, are there to uh, to training and qualifying as solicitor. I think this might be the appropriate moment to open the uh, discussion out to the floor. We've got another 10 minutes or so. So I think we have a roving microphone. Does anybody um, want to ask a question about anything they've heard so far to either our guests or even to myself and Peter about the, uh, the, the, the future of legal practice, particularly in relation to small rural firms? Um, thank you so much for your talk. It was great. Um, I suppose my question would be for David more specifically. Um, just personally, I am also from a small, small town in uh, Tipperary, um, great as it is. But I suppose, would you have any advice for potential trainees? I suppose like we, a lot of us here probably have colleagues or, you know, family or, you know, past students, whatever, that may be looking to get into law in some way. Um, and like you said, when we all start out, we don't know a whole lot. But I suppose when I was starting and I was still in college, I offered up to work for free. I, you know, it was very difficult trying to get in anywhere. And in all honesty, I had a small connection, which is what got me to my job now. Um, so I suppose, is there anything, is there any advice you could give to law students who are looking at getting into practice and maybe want to stay at home? in their rural areas or are just homebody and what can they do to make them seem more attractive while they're still studying and practice is something they want to do? That's a really good question. I'm delighted to get that question. And yeah, it is difficult when you don't have a background in law. I didn't have a background myself. So 
it can be quite intimidating, say, to call into a law firm and to, you know, ask to speak to a solicitor to see would they be willing to take you on. But I, I would suggest that maybe you, you, you send letters like to, to local firms or to firms in, you know, where you want to work and offer your services. You said you did that. I, I don't. Did you get many responses? No. Um, it's funny. I actually got a letter recently from from um, uh, a young woman in Nina who's who's doing law in UL, and I am going to take her on for a few weeks in in just starting next month, uh, say one day a week, just to give her a taste of of law practice. So I do think it does work sometimes. Um, so just if you can call into the firms, if you ask your parents who their solicitor is, and maybe arrange a meeting. Um, accidentally bump into a solicitor um, like because a lot of rural firms we are missing that enthusiasm that comes with having young people around you know um, I don't mean to sound condescending like but it's brilliant to have younger people around because it just gives a different vibe to a place and um, you know yeah so just don't give up persevere Keep at it and you will get something. Can I ask a question arising from that? One of the things that strikes me about a lot of the smaller firms that I'm familiar with is their websites are absolutely dreadful. Yeah. And I would have thought if, if, if you're a young person that is looking for an opportunity to work for a rural firm, to go in and say, I know how to make your website good, to make you look good, that will, get you, that will, that will bring more to the firm than your, 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 your good results and your... The problem, Mark, um, if I could say this, and I said this to Sonia earlier on, we're not actually suffering from lack of work. And in my, it, it doesn't sound like good no, business, no. right? But actually, I've got to the point now where I'm comfortable, I'm probably uncomfortable with the level of work I have. Um, so having a jazzy website is not a priority for me. And actually, my website has been under construction for five years now. Because, <laughs> um, but, but, but my name and number is up and my email address and I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on I have a Facebook. Have you guys heard of Facebook? <laughs> uh, I have a Facebook page and I think that's enough, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that is something that that actually, yeah, might be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I actually agree with you about the, about the website. Now, my, my website is there, all right, but you have to be really careful about the management of what comes in through a website, right? Because for every... Uh, maybe 20 inquiries that you might get, there might be one that is a genuinely good lead. So you have to be firstly able to answer, able to manage the level of inquiry coming in. So that will mean returning phone calls or returning emails or whatever it might be. So there's time involved in that to filter out the people who, quite frankly, are going to waste your time because there'll be some of those out there to engage maybe a little bit more with people who do have a genuine query, but maybe won't generate any work for you. So there's a lot of time involved in managing a website. So I think the the idea of generating your business through a website is is one that just needs to be treated with some care. Okay, great. Any more questions, folks? That was a brilliant question. Yeah, gentleman up there. Yeah, I'll just also add, to, to go to what David said as well, um, we've had a young person approach us recently looking for some work experience, and I went back immediately and said yes. So I do think that solicitors across the board would be willing, you know, if that approach comes around looking for work experience and that sort of thing, I think you will find a, a positive kind of uh, response on, on that approach. Um, really enjoyed the podcast, guys. Um, I'm actually from Dublin. I work in a larger firm, so I think it's very interesting to get a different perspective on the type of work that's done. Um, on a personal note, I think it's endemic maybe of the plight of maybe rural Ireland that there is very few young people living there. So 
there isn't that same pull maybe to work in smaller rural firms. Um, do you think there's a greater need for the pooling of resources around smaller and rural firms? To You spoke about the increase in regulation that, you know, especially on the military side, whereby, you know, one firm could have a secretary or a legal exec working a certain amount of days a week that they could be, you know, there could be a greater kind of collaboration between firms to ensure that, you know, you spoke just there about the um, amount of queries you might get that you can deal with that kind of volume of work coming in in a more effective way. Yeah, great question. I've been talking about this for at least 15 years. You're absolutely right. Um, and I've only ever come across one group of practitioners who I've seen operate this really successfully. And, and they were based in Dublin here. And there were four practitioners in the building, each of them sole practitioners. But they shared reception, they shared the meeting rooms, they shared, you know, in terms of library and books and things like that. Um, and they had an arrangement amongst themselves that um, inquiries that came in off the street or came through the phone were, were offered out strictly on a rota basis. So the next call was for you, the one after that was for me. And then there was no feeling of you're getting more than I am or, or that sort of thing. So I really believe that um, there is what well, we shared office facilities, um, shared potentially staffing arrangements, um, almost a kind of chambers type environment. So although you might be individually sole practitioners or maybe small partnerships, or whatever, you could all operate out of the same building. You can all make use of the same resources. So given that there's a continued downward pressure on fees and, you know, that's not going to get any better uh, if we're realistic about it and upward pressure on costs, there's definitely something that has to be done. And I would certainly feel that um, that, that is a way forward. I think one of the huge barriers to that, though, is um, historically, legal practitioners have felt that by buying their own business premises, that that has been a, a sort of pension fund for them. They've paid it off through the years that they've been working and then they can sell it when they retire and there's there's a sum of money available to them. And I think it's detaching ourselves from that kind of thinking as well that's, that's required. But it, it's, it's, it's there for the taking as far as I'm concerned, yeah. Okay, super. Uh, folks, anybody else? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so my question is more to do it like the trainee. So you're saying that that you can't afford to like take on a trainee, like you have to pay the fees, you have to pay the mother in black oil, um, all the type of things. But would you not see it as an investment in the future and the survival of your firm, especially in like moral practices? Because if you're not taking on any trainees, then just, nobody's kind of to come like behind you. And it's not that expensive. Like you're, if you're paying the minimum wage, like for a professional, like very poorly paid to like go through college, to go through everything and then to be paid minimum wage. And then I get out there's all the other expenses and stuff on top of that. But at the end of the day, like it is an investment in your firm. They're going to bring in business. You're going to get someone to train. They're also going to bring in talents that you don't have or like an awareness of different areas. So is it not a necessary expense for smaller uh, rural firms to do like I'd completely support that way of looking at it. Um, but it's not what we're seeing in practice. So the, the barriers are there. Um, and, and I do think the financial aspect is one of those barriers, there's no doubt about it. But I think for anyone looking to secure their own future, you're absolutely right. When you say grow your own, you know, bring, bring in a trainee, um, show them how, introduce them to your own clients, show them how you like things done and, and let them grow with the business as you go on. So um, we just need to see more solicitors willing to do that. But it, is, think about think about it that way. But is it really an investment? I mean, are you able to keep, yeah. you know, once you've trained somebody in, are you able to keep them for five or six years or is there anything to stop them going? That, that's, right, actually, that's, that's we'll just take the benefit and go off somewhere else. It's a 50,000 euro question, isn't mm. it? You know, 50,000 per year. You're, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an investment, but what's to stop you going off and going to another firm or, you know, it... it yeah, I mean, I, 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 surely the part, wonderful work and the and the sense of achievement and <laughs> yeah. the fulfilment on a daily basis, David. Surely that's the that's the incentive. Yeah, 
You'll have to tell it to me for better, I think. Yeah. Can, I, can I just put it out, Tim, just to show a hands? And we're on the radio, so I'm going to have to describe what we see here. Um, in terms of, you're all trainees, you're all in the middle of apprenticeships, I believe. Uh, how many people are associated with smaller firms? Oh, wow, that's very healthy, isn't it? All the rest of them are gone home. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. So that's, that's, I'd say that's more than half, you know, which is the way it should be anyway. But um, yeah, no, that's, that, that's really good. Any, any, sorry, Mark, excuse me. How many are outside of Dublin? Must be about a third, please. Well, this is largely the hybrid group that we have today. So I think in the the, the core PPC group, I think it's seventy five percent. That stat is not completely accurate, but it's a hugely commercially Dublin based numbers. Okay, and just we we've still have time, folks. Any any more questions out there? The questions have been great. That gentleman there, yeah. Hi, thank you very much. Just a very quick question: uh, with the pull that Dublin firms, the big firms, offer in terms of paying for your fees at a higher salary. Um, you're obviously talked about the reduction of trainees and newly qualified solicitors in rural practice. Do you feel that's going to have a negative impact on the legal services available to people in rural communities because you might be getting a good solicitor into your firm rather than a great solicitor because the big firms are pulling them? And then also, is the survival of your firm going to be based on people like yourselves who've returned back to rural practice after practicing in big cities? Well, maybe just to go to the first the first part of that, um, I'd be a little um, I'd be a little hesitant to draw a line between good solicitors and great solicitors because I think every solicitor can has the capacity to be a great solicitor. I don't think that goes or is reflected in the firm that they work for. Um, you know, with Dave and I have both mentioned areas of law that we operate in that are highly technical. You know, you you really need to know what you're doing. So um, so I think small practices have great solicitors too. But you're absolutely right. And I think that's really what we're saying here today is that the um, the, the lure of the, the city and, and and to a greater extent, the larger firms is there and it is having an impact. But it is a problem that has been developing over, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years, but we've just seen it accelerated, I think, in the last in the last number of years. And now it's coming to a point where we think, oh, gosh, we, we need to start doing something. Uh, we need to start doing something about can, this. Can I just ask you, just pick up on something you said before, Sonia, you were saying that fees are going down, you know, while kind of costs are going, pressure, yeah, pressure, and costs are going up. And then picking up on what David said, you said you have more than enough work, you're you're out the door with work. So, I mean, the the supply supply and demand, the laws of supply and demand, I mean, why are fees going down as a result of that? Sorry, do you want to, yeah. There, it's 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 a funny one, right? I like, and obviously we should be careful how we talk about fees because we're all individual enterprises and we can't be seen to have concerted practices or anything like that. But speaking anecdotally, people are afraid to put up their fees, even though they might have a lot of business. They they don't want to be known as the most expensive firm. I think certainly, in contrast to auctioneers' fees, for example, I I do think there's scope for solicitors to charge more when it comes to conveyancing. Um, and, uh, and I can't understand why solicitors don't charge a bit more. And I can speak for myself. I do charge a bit more than colleagues and my business hasn't suffered as a result of that. I think if you provide a good service and you get a good name, I think people will come back to you. I think we've been a little bit overly negative. Like there are huge positives to working in, in a town like Nina in a large town, you know, as, as Sonia said earlier on, like, in terms of work-life balance, in terms of your ability to get involved in the community, in terms of when you 
when you have kids and, and you have a young family, being close to schools, being close to your home, be, you know, like I left work at 10 to 6 yesterday. I had a, a gym class at 6 o'clock. I was able to go home and change and be in my gym class for 6 o'clock. You know, it, it's there are huge advantages to working in rural Ireland. And I think we just have to get better as a group in selling that and in marketing Okay. The positives that are there. Okay. For I, see, I see John sitting down. John, we want you moving again. Any more questions up there? Something right, that might you. assist uh, small practices um, would be a staggered fee payment for blackout fees. I'm paying my own fees and, you know, it is a huge expense. And it's something that could put off people who might want to get into law. A firm can't pay. They can't afford, you know, avail of the grant that's available as well to have been able to pay in a staggered format over the the year of the the hybrid. You know, that would have been hugely beneficial. Now, I was just about able to manage it. But, you know, it's an option. Maybe the law society might think of, you know, extending so, to something to reflect on. Yeah, yeah absolutely. OK, great point. Before final question. No, well, no, well, I think it's still... Is there a few more questions in the house? Let's get a few more, Mark. We can, time pressure. We can, <laughs> we, can, we can do a marathon session. We can do three shows. So I'm actually um, with a very, very small practice. There's only a sole practitioner and I'm, in fact, the only employee that he has. So it's about as small as you can get. But I'm just wondering, do you think it would be worth promoting... in? for encouraging trainees to approach smaller offices, looking at, as you were talking about, you know, those benefits that are there, the, the potential for, for greater variety in terms of the experience that you get. So I know personally, I can, I'm very fortunate in that I'm actually dealing with a number of areas of law, whereas I know a lot of relations that I have that have studied, they're just stuck in conveyancing or in commercial, for example. Yeah, I think the direct approach and Someone referenced earlier about the writing of letters. Was that I know I was looking for what was an apprenticeship at the time back when they were scarce. Scarce, and I think I sent about two hundred letters before I was like that. I've no connections in law uh, either. So, so and so yes, I think a more personal approach I think is definitely a good idea and a way of trying to distinguish yourself because. When we're under pressure in the office, and we've heard this already, the letters that come in don't always get replied to. Um, the letters that come in from young people maybe looking for experience or that sort of thing are not the first ones to be responded to and then can fall down um, a list perhaps. And, and look, that's not really good enough, but at the same time, it's the reality of what happens. So, yeah, I do think knock on the door and go and ask. And and have done a little bit of research around who the, who the practitioner is, um, what it is that they're involved in, the type of work that they do, and be able to sit and say... Um, why you want that job. Um, I, I put a post up on LinkedIn in the last couple of days about having offered a young woman a job at one point. And the reason I offered that young woman the job at the time was because she said to me at the interview about how much she wanted that job with me. Yeah, I would say... And that say was actually all it took for me to choose her from the... So, so really work on where you're going and, and, and let them know. I'm interested. I really want this. Always be nice to the receptionist. Absolutely. <laughs> you have no idea the power they have. This lady has no receptionist. Yeah. She's the receptionist well, are... as well. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Can we squeeze in one more question? I know John is trying to wrap things up. Well, there's three uh, there. I'm well, loving the enthusiasm. Two, Peter, two. brilliant, okay. brilliant. Yeah. Um, I work in a small general practice as well, and we do a, a range of different law, but particularly in the last couple of months, we, we've noticed this a lot of rejections coming from Talter Aaron. I know Sonia already touched on that. On LinkedIn, I mean, uh, 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 <laughs> like, is is there anything that can be done to, 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 to yeah, Sonia. stop that? <laughs> be because it's causing so much more work in our office when there's rejections on complicated 
property conveyance and so on. So this is, it's, it's a very impressive rebrand, isn't it? That it, the first thing that happened is yeah, this. It's, it's yeah, just, yeah, it's the, um, it's, and, and this has caused uproar in, in very recent times. It's a very recent change in policy and there's been a very slight rowing back um, on that policy in recent times as well. But um, I, I think there's two parts to it. Um, firstly, the conveyancing committee is engaged with Todd Aaron on this issue, absolutely engaged in relation to this issue. And the second thing is, I suppose the views that are coming back from Talcha Aaron do um, indicate a, uh, that, there is a, that there are improvements to be made <coughs> in the quality of applications that are being lodged. So I'm not necessarily talking about something that's more complex. And, and um, where applications are complex, they can take the time and sometimes things are overlooked or errors are made. But, um, you know, it's really important when you're sending documents out that you check that they're signed, that you check that they're witnessed that you check that there's a witness description on the deed, for example, that you check that they're dated. And the one that is my, I mean, utter bugbear, you check that the folio number is on the stamp cert. Because although the revenue commissioners don't need to know that, the land registry too, or Todja Aaron does. So um, I, I think there's two spots to say the conveyancing committee is very much on that issue. Yeah, I, I'm going to be a bit more forceful here. I think it's totally unacceptable. We pay the land registry fees to Todja Aaron to process the application. Um, and the fees are quite high and they're based on the value of the property, actually, which, you know, tells its own story. But I, I do think the least they can do is let you know what, what the problem is. And OK, I get it that they're frustrated that they might be getting, a, you know, a lot of applications with mistakes. But sure, then they should just maybe send us a list of those mistakes that we can maybe review or a checklist or something that we have to send with the application. But it's not good enough to just send it back and not tell you why. I mean, you're going to have a situation now where you're sending something three or four times because you're trying to guess what the issue is. I think that was the real issue. There was no advanced consultation about this change in policy. So, Okay, final question. Okay, final question. And maybe a woman in the house. Hi, I know you said that you weren't against the pooling of resources, but would you think like in a rural area that maybe a couple of solicitors could get together and train one person? a local person to say, look, I'm actually, I'm great at this and you're great at that. Why don't we give this person wide exposure and we'll all contribute to their training and split the cost? What a great I idea. I, I don't, I, that sounds like a really good idea. I don't know, is that possible with the way it's... I think you'd have one, you'd still have to have one principal training solicitor and then I think there would possibly be secondments maybe organised with, with other firms. I think it is something that can work. It just takes people coming together to make it work. And the only maybe issue I'd see that might need a little, a little care and attention would be the likes of client confidentiality, where you're working with maybe more than one firm in a smaller, in a smaller area. But, you know, that should be said it's common enough at the bar for somebody to principally devil for one person, but then you know do work, uh, work for others yeah. just to get the yeah. variety. It, just, of it does seem like something yeah. that that should yeah, be. Um, so now I think we really have reached the end of our time. So uh, we, but as, as regular listeners will know, we have a final question for our uh, interviewees. So uh, maybe start with you, Sonia. Have you a book or a film you'd like to recommend to everybody yeah. here and online? Uh, yeah, I have, I have a real interest in current affairs and, and politics. So I suppose the book that I would recommend is one that I read last year. And it's called My Fourth... Uh, the fourth, my fourth time. My fourth time we drowned by Sally Hayden, and it's just an it's an incredible piece of investigative journalism around um, the journeys that people are taking to to travel. In that case, the Mediterranean Sea uh, to get into to get into Europe from Africa, and I think it just opens our eyes to um, 
you know, the travesty of migration around the world and why people have to do it. And, and it informs, I think, a lot of the debates that are going on. I think on the, the title is so horrific that it kind of puts you off reading it. Is it, yeah. you, you can make it through the first few pages? Can you? No, you, you can. Yeah. It, it, yeah. it is, it's, it's a tough read. It's actually a compelling read. Right. I think when you start, you just won't be able to put right. it down. Right. And David? I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and recommend a book called The Cow Book by John Connell. <laughs> And it's, it's John Connell. Connell. It's a, it's a really, really nice memoir type book of a guy whose father is a farmer who, who is ill and he goes back to the farm and takes over the running of the farm. And, um, I'm not from a farm background, but I just, it's just a lovely, lovely read and it gives you a real understanding of life on a farm and the ups and downs. And the cow book. The cow book. Yeah, it's really, really good. And folks, do you have any time to watch movies at all? No. What? <laughs> uh, Any legal first, films? Oh, um, I don't watch a lot of television or movies, but I, I did. I, but I love the theatre, though. So I'm always on the lookout for, and I do love the legal dramas. I suppose I, I went over uh, to London last year to see *To Kill a Mockingbird*. Uh, you know, which and, and that to me, that's just a phenomenal. Debate. Okay, great. I would have to go with uh, *Philomena*. The, oh yeah, uh, the film with with Judy Dench. And um, Sean Ross Abbey and Ross Gray, it's kind of, you know, area close to Nina. And it's just, I think she's brilliant in it. Her Irish accent is fantastic, but it's just a really, really well done for a very serious topic. She has an Irish mother, um, All right. Judy Dench, I think, um, but I might be yeah. wrong on that. OK, folks, that's it. Uh, we've come to the end of our show. Mark, wasn't I right that there were more rock and roll than... The crowd down at the electric picnic. Absolutely. Folks, thank you for all the contributions. And, uh, and yeah, no, just to say to the audience have been fantastic and it's the, the participation has been really great. Can I say a huge thank you to Sonia McEntee for all those wonderful insights into running uh, a solicitor's practice and also to David Peters again for, you know, the insights that you've given running your own practice in Nina and County Tip. Haven't they been brilliant? The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. And can we say a huge thank you to our guests, Sonia McEntee and David Peters, two solicitors who spoke to us live on stage at the Law Society Conference on the Future of Practice. It was a really enjoyable thing to take part in. Yeah, I mean, I think the takeaway here is that there, there are clearly challenges for anybody who's working in a small practice these days in terms of, of, of how things are going forward. But there are going to be opportunities um, arising from new technology. And I think people who, who are interested in working in that area May, if they're ahead of the game, may well be in a position to uh, to, to capitalise yeah, on it. Yeah, no, I think, I think it was a really valid discussion and, you know, hopefully it does assist with that. Okay, before we go, can I just say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to Lee Brennan of the Dublin South Podcast Studios for their wonderful work in recording this show. So from me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.